This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Happy Monday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered, spent all night working the interweb to find the latest and greatest information for you today. Well, actually, I was just up late watching the post. Oh, is that what, is that what you Yeah, did? I looked at the clock and went, wow, i got to get up in the morning. i got to go to bed. It's kind of a compelling movie. Is it? A little bit. Interesting. A little interesting. We ought to maybe have you do a little review of the post. No, nah, it's fine. It's an old movie. Go watch it. Yeah. Old as in, you know, two months or whatever. It's two months old. Uh, a lot of shoot up in that one. A lot of uh, the post. Yeah, a lot it's of just, journalists fighting each other well, and yeah. then getting crazy. And and then the government trying to stop the New York Times. They actually did. And then the Washington Post just ran with it, even though yeah. they knew they were going to get sued. And, oh you know, yeah, politics is the new, you know, uh, high in high intensity, high stakes, high stakes action movie. Action movie. It's not really. It's Lots just people of at desks. Yeah. People in people's front rooms because they couldn't trust their newsroom to keep the story quiet. Some girl selling lemonade. You make we'll it sound boring. It kind of is. There's a lot of like like tension, but if you just sit back and watch it, it's kind of like, okay. Let's get to something that I know you're much more Ooh. interested in. The Duchess of Cambridge gives birth to a baby boy, yeah. uh, which means we now know who is fifth in succession, in line of succession yeah. to uh, the crown. There you go. This is exciting news. Mm. When when we when it was announced, Becca was very excited. She went. Oh, she had her baby. Well, which is a neat thing. I did. It's a great, cute family, wonderful yeah. baby, it's and great. you got all good. Like, uh, here all we go. Grinched on it. Kissing all the people that are just overwhelmingly focused on this royal family, seeing that our country was built on the concept of pulling away from that concept. Yeah, but none of these people were there. But we're so enthralled with everything they do. And, oh, what did she wear? And I'm not going to pay taxes. And... I just think it's a cute baby. They're, they're essentially oh, national. you're making her cry. <laughs> they're national parks, right? In yeah. our country, well, we have national different. parks. In their country, they support this family with tax dollars. But it's a, it's a, it's a portable, walking, human right. national park. I understand. But they're national parks. It's a boy, by the way. I understand. It's a boy. Good uh, job. Maybe the fu- maybe a future king. At least a prince we know. Yeah. It's a big maybe. deal. Right. And then this poor the it's oldest exciting. the old is it George? Is that the oldest child of William? Yeah, yeah I believe See, that is. That prince poor George. kid, his entire life is gonna be micromanaged. People are gonna focus on everything he does because he could be the king. Yeah, but what's wrong with that? You can't live Every, a normal life that way. Know, but you guys micromanage your child. Not really. You call him Prince, and no. then you you knight uh, him with a noodle. No, not really. We just want him to go outside and play with his friends. Just go play with your friends. <laughs> Get out of the house. Please. Anyway, congratulations uh, to Kate Middleton and Prince William. That's Yeah, good job. It's awesome. It's exciting Knocked stuff. it out of the park. Good and job. And Prince Harry can relax. He's been moved down a notch, and now he can really just go marry Meghan Markle, and yeah. life will be great. And just... Roll with whatever comes his way. Yeah. You want me to go to another country and represent the crown? I'll be there. I'll be wherever you want me to go. Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, Against Prince Andrew also was moved down. Yeah. He, so he, he gets bumped further down yeah, because sorry. he's never seeing the. Let's get real, Prince Andrew. It's time that you just maybe go find a future right. for yourself. 
You're not going to be the king. <laughs> anyway, Alva, uh, that's that's always exciting. I think I think we'll we'll keep covering it. A because Becca a, loves it and Terry yeah. loves it. And if there's a commemorative plate, we can maybe order those for the That'd show. That'd be great. I love it. That'd be perfect. See, I wanted to start hanging commemorative plates and spoons up, but there, couldn't find a wall a for it. A thimble or two? I think we know what poster to get Terry for his office. Totally. Yeah, I know right. exactly. Maybe an office, too. Let's get uh, let's get you the headlines. Uh, Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Nashville police say a 29-year-old man is to thank for preventing more deaths in a fatal Waffle House shooting Sunday morning. James Shaw Jr. suffered non-life-threatening injuries, including a minor gunshot wound when he rushed the huh. gunman, disarmed him, and threw his rifle over the restaurant counter, a, po- a police spokesperson wow. said. The suspect, a gunman identified by police as Illinois resident Travis Ranking, was thought to have been reloading his assault-style rifle when Shaw Jr. tackled him. Police later found additional ammunition cartridges in the jacket of the suspected shooter that he left behind. But Shaw Jr. says he doesn't think of himself as a hero. He says, I don't really know. When everyone says that, I, it feels selfish. He was quoted as by saying, I was just trying to get myself out. I saw the opportunity and pretty much took it, he said. Police are still searching for ranking, who allegedly opened fire on the restaurant customers while uh, in a, a, what, varying status of dress, apparently, as as another element of this. He wasn't wearing any clothes. Uh, He killed four, injured several others before Shaw disarmed him. Police say he was known to law enforcement from previous interactions in other cities. There's a story that the the gunman's father or the police took the guns away and then his father gave them back or something. So guns had been removed and then he got them back somehow. All sorts of issues will come up because of this because... He feels that Taylor Swift was stalking him is another story I saw. Well, so, you know, I, mean, I haven't seen Taylor Swift out lately. Right. The other guy was throwing money over a fence that we robbed the bank. Yeah, and that's right. Money. Yeah, so I mean, she all has, of this is her fault. She gets implicated in all these stories. Poor she's, Taylor. All she's trying to do is, you know, just, just make good music. Make, well, yeah, maybe she'd still try. Uh, South Korea has switched off the towers of loudspeakers it uses to pump propaganda into North Korea along wow. their border in the latest step of diplomatic healing between the two countries. That's the speakers cool. have blasted K-pop. If you want to look that up <laughs> on YouTube, you'll understand why that could be used as uh, what mental warfare or whatever is you're trying to... Isn't that Gangnam style? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, they blast K-pop and news reports critical of, the, of North Korea in hope of turning soldiers and civilians based near the border against their country. But ahead of a summit between the two countries later this week, South Korea decided to bring the broadcast to an end early Monday morning in order to ease the military tension between the two Koreas and develop peaceful, summit-like atmosphere. That's nice, yeah. A spokesperson said. North Korea announced over the weekend that it had suspended all missile tests and will shut down its nuclear test sites. A direct hotline between the countries, the two leaders have been set up. They tested it. It sounded like they were standing next to each other. That's great. It's kind of interesting. We agree we won't test nuclear weapons, and you agree to turn off your K-pop. There you go. K-pop is very destructive. Apparently. Look at it. You can see. Oh, It's the new nuclear weapon. The latest version of President Trump's travel ban faces a showdown in the Supreme Court this week. The justices will hear oral arguments on Wednesday in a challenge to the policy. The first two versions of the ban targeted people from only a handful of predominantly Muslim countries. The third version also included restrictions on certain travelers from North Korea and Venezuela, although those restrictions were not challenged. The lead plaintiff, the state of Hawaii, argues that the policy still violates the Constitution by favoring people of other faiths over Muslims. Huh. The Supreme Court ruled in December that most of the ban could take effect while the legal challenge was working its way through the courts. Okay. So that's Wednesday. 
Well, that's a big day. But we won't really know anything about it because they always take weeks and months to actually reveal the findings of their It seems court like case. President Trump has more stuff getting to these courts than others, maybe. Yes. I mean, at least he's good in court. I guess he's, he's causing uh, legal bills to be paid. Uh, finally, a Berkeley, Washington teacher who brought a deactivated bazooka into his classroom last week was placed on paid administrative leave, officials said. Alex Angel, who teaches AP History and World History at Berkeley High School in Washington, was placed on leave April 11th pending an investigation into the incident, said uh, Charles Barres, a spokesperson for the school district. A video was posted on social media, as it always is, showing Angel holding the bazooka over his shoulder while explaining how it was used roughly 70 years ago. So he had the big tube. Yeah. He did not have the shell. Yeah. So he had like an empty gun at school. Except this being well, you know, a, a bazooka. Big, a really big gun. The weapon was apparently not armed. The district did not say how it became aware of the incident. A former student who has taken the, those history classes in the past said that, uh, yeah, he's brought that to class before. Oh, he brings it all the time. <laughs> Another student said that he had numerous historical artifacts in his classroom, including a World War II backpack and a medieval shield. He's trying to bring history alive, people. He By used the way, a bazooka. You know that that class was the most interesting oh, day yeah. of class. Right. We just don't want our kids to learn anymore, I guess. He brought a bazooka. Now, is there any chance that he could have maybe cleared that with the district saying that I don't have a shell? Yeah, they, they would have said no. It's just an empty tube to show kids what it looks like when we talk about a bazooka. Well, and even if he did, I feel like by the time the video hits social media, you start it starts spreading really fast. People right. are going to demand a response. Is that the equivalent of bringing, say, an unloaded gun into the classroom? Kind of. A bazooka? I mean, it you, seems really how, extreme. How common are bazooka shells? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they accessible? Well, yeah. Like, well like, yeah. It's probably, like, connected to the bathroom key. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things that... I, I think it being absurdly large and yeah. sort of a extreme sort of weapon that they might have said okay but I doubt it just because it's a weapon and people don't want those in schools yeah but you know he had a bazooka he's done it before the kids are like it's fine it's fun yeah the problem is too they all would have pulled their phones out then you have a picture of some teacher pointing a bazooka at people (laughs) and then he's like it's not even loaded it's unloaded this is fun and then they tase him and then one thing leads to another and the next thing you know there's a lawsuit there you go Oh, what's happening to this country? Can't even bring a bazooka to school anymore. Darn. Darn. It's a good one to write down, though, you know, yeah, in the future. A, yeah, it's a great Make a mental note. Leave the bazooka home. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, do people really get promoted based on their competency, right? Are the best, you know, are the best, let's say you're a salesperson and you get the highest uh sales numbers. Would that make you the best manager? Is that the way we should be promoting people? Interesting research up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Have you ever worked in a job where, um, you know, everyone's working hard, you're all trying to get the best numbers you can, 
Then they need a new manager and they hire the the number one numbers getter, the person that can really bring home the numbers. And then that person gets into the management position and you realize they're not a very good manager, but they're really good at getting the numbers. Well, our next guest is here to talk about that principle. That's called the Peter Principle. And uh, it states that the selection of a candidate for a position is based on the candidate's performance in their current role rather than on their abilities relevant to the intended role that you're, you're hiring them to do. Joining us today is Dr. Alan Benson. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and he's here to talk with us about what the Peter Principle is and a study that they conducted that might uh, blow up some myths in how we should be hiring people. Dr. Benson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate the invitation to you join bet. you this morning. This is such, I think, interesting research. The Peter Principle, it's been around for many, many years. Talk to us, I guess, d- define what it is and what made you so interested in studying it. <laughs> Great. So um, you're right. So it has been around for many years. In fact, uh, the original book uh, was published in 1969, so almost 50 years ago. Wow. And it was written by an academic, but um, an, actually an educator who was uh, who just uh, actually has a satirical book, and he noticed that it seems uh, that whenever you've, uh, an organization has an opening, it's just like you said, they seem to uh, pick the person who has the best numbers. And, and that really poses a problem when you imagine that the person who has the best numbers might not necessarily be the person who would actually be the best manager. Mm. Um, and so it's a really hard idea to test. You know, you can imagine that uh, that someone who has the best numbers might become like a merely okay manager, but that was still the best, uh, the organization's best guess for who to promote. And so what we did is we looked at um, a really neat data set, uh, data that comes from a company that hosts other companies' data. So they have um, over 200 firms and tens of thousands of salespeople, uh, many of whom were promoted. And we saw, uh, asked two questions. First of all, uh, did the, this uh, these organizations promote the best salespeople, uh, and did these best salespeople tend to make good managers? And I think what you can uh, you can kind of anticipate what we found: uh, organizations did uh, tend to promote the very best salespeople, but kind of the irony is that these great salespeople actually didn't tend to make very good managers. In fact, we saw the better the salesperson was, uh, the worse the manager became. In other words, the the worse their the subordinates did after that new manager was promoted, mm. and so uh, and so we say that you know this looks an awful lot like the Peter Principle. This looks like organizations are promoting people who can make the numbers, uh, and then they come into the management role and they don't really deliver anymore. But you actually found this inverse relationship. So the better the numbers, the worse the manager. Yeah, that's right. That's it's amazing. So yeah. yeah. That's it. so and, interesting because, um, again, we do this com- – everybody, it seems like, all companies could fall into this belief that, you know, if, if, they are, if they're a good salesperson, they'd probably know how to manage people. But it's just not the case. Yeah. I think for us it was also fun because, uh, you know, we were presenting we – were, we were looking at salespeople. But I think you hear a lot of the same stories when it comes to – like the best engineer doesn't make the best engineering manager or the best 
in academia, you might say the best academic uh, doesn't make the best department chair or dean or or school president. Um, And I think the trap is that we take people who are great at their jobs, and then we change their jobs so much when we promote them to become a manager. I mean, you can even see the best researcher may be the worst teacher. But we still make them teach, right? So, so now I've got to sit there. For my there. students who might be listening, I, uh, <laughs> I yeah, well, hope, maybe. hope not. Yeah, but yeah. but it, it's it's an interesting idea that we. I guess we just kind of think: is this just about efficiency? Is it about lazy? We're we're too lazy to know how to measure. Um, why why do we do this so naturally, especially if it doesn't yield the results? Well, that's a great question. So, um, so. The funny thing is that organizations might actually be uh, be smart about this. They might say, well, we can promote the best salesperson or we could promote somebody who's well-liked in the organization and has these leadership skills. Um, but if they pass over the best salesperson and that salesperson wanted a promotion, then that could be really bad for future incentives. And so it might not necessarily be that organizations are making mistakes, it's just that these they're kind of paying for they're, they're buying incentives and they're paying with uh, with the quality of their of their managers or the or the uh, allocation of talented people to the places where their skills can best be used. Mm. So they really don't know how to incentivize other ways other than maybe promotion. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big challenges. I think it's. Uh, Promotions serve such an important role in organizations as an incentive device, you know, and people feel like they start at the, the, the lowest rung of, a, of an organization's ladder. And if you're on a ladder, then sometimes you just feel like you need to climb it. It's so true, isn't it? Um, so uh, what, what, what are you hoping people get from your research? What, what were some of the, well, I guess, what were some of the learnings, but what are you, where do you think this is going to go from here? Um, so I think um, so. I think one of the learnings for me is I think when you look in the the data and as we've been kind of sharing this idea with practitioners, um, also I think that uh, one thing that really struck out to me was just the value of a of a good manager. I think the flip side is someone who's a talented manager. You can really see them uh, bringing up the best in their team and their salespeople in this case perform so much better. Um, and so I think you can be thankful for uh, for good managers, just as you can see the flip side, where we see the best salespeople sometimes becoming not so good managers, or oftentimes not becoming good managers. I think um, there's a lot of things that organizations can do too to kind of uh, fight against the Peter principle. So one thing that we see, especially in engineering and other and like science, is that uh, organizations will have multiple ladders. So there'll be one ladder for top uh, individual contributors, people who are really great programmers or really great academics or however, and another ladder for people who want to go down a more managerial track. That way you can keep people in kind of the roles that they that they like best and that they're best suited for. And I guess um, you'd, have to, you'd have to compensate them um, – because a lot of times it's easy to compensate like a performer because they're generating revenue on that performance. But maybe you'd have to just kind of keep some of the managerial track people 
uh, motivated, I, I guess, other ways. They, they, you'd have to maybe promote, give them other types of benefits while they're waiting to manage. That's exactly right. Yeah. So and I think that can be a really big uh, challenge, too, for individual contributors. Uh, so um, sometimes, for example, if you have a top if you have an individual contributor track, you could be in a situation where individual contributors uh, who are um, re- real stars and they've reached the top of their career ladders might be managed by people who are actually rather low on their own career ladders on their managerial track. Right. And so, um, and I think one of the oldest principles in management is that uh, is that managers should make more than their uh, subordinates. And but this is one of the solutions. If you have a top individual contributor and you want to reward them for the values that, value that they bring to their organization, then you're going to have some of these same tensions going on too. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I've I've actually seen a, um, an organization where like the top producers that have been producing for a long time end up almost receiving like a tenure. They get tenured in the company and they, oh, reach, yeah? they reach this level where they, they really are almost like untouchable and they, mm-hmm. they, they get to self-manage a little bit more. They still, they still work on teams so that they can share their best practices, but they really reach this level of, uh, you know, untouchable. Yeah. And that's really neat because, you know, I think, What's striking is that we usually think about about those kinds of individuals. That's kind of something you might think more about uh, being appropriate for a manager. But as you mentioned, you know, sometimes you can see that happening for individual contributors as well. Yeah. And so it's kind of uh, it shows how creative organizations are in trying to keep people where their skills are best suited. <laughs> it's is is this. I mean, I know this. The Peter Principle was first, I guess, written about in '69, and and the book came out. But I mean, it seems like with a faster growing and and faster moving workplace, with the diversity of how we can work, where we can work, and uh, you know, people wanting a, a different kind of life, is is it now? Is it time to that the 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 market itself is demanding a change to this principle? That's a good question. And I think, you know, there used to be a time uh, 50 years ago, um, actually even when this book was written, where uh, where people would spend most of their careers in a single organization. Yeah. And, um, and so academics call those internal labor markets as opposed to external labor markets where people move across companies more fluidly. And... Uh, people have written about how, you know, those kind of internal labor markets, those career jobs, uh, they're breaking down. And as you mentioned, people are moving across organizations and perhaps there's more of a need for some of that flexibility. Um, and so I think that could be absolutely right. I think part of what organizations are trying to do in their techniques is trying to, for example, make roles for those star individual contributors. They can bring them into the organizational structure uh, they can perhaps have more autonomy. They can um, they can continue to do the jobs that they're brought in to do and that they're good at. And I think a lot of organizations are trying to be more flexible so that they can more uh, do a better job of really interfacing in a really competitive labor economic environment. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Alan Benson, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Work and Organizations in the Carlson School of Management of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And um, Alan, as as you look at this, 
Um, you you studied a sales organization, but I guess uh, your findings would apply. Do you think across any any type of organization? Yeah, I think they would apply pretty much to any organization where the activities that uh, kind of a more rank and file person of the of the organization are doing different jobs than their bosses. And I think that's kind of an inherent uh, tension in a lot of organizations. I think it's particularly pronounced in sales where the activities of a salesperson could be different than a, than a sales manager or an engineer where an engineer is obviously doing things different than an engineering manager. Uh, but I think it's very general. I think there's a, going to be, I think management is a real skill in that uh, and that they're doing things that are very different than their subordinates. We just had somebody on the show uh, recently, too, that was talking about the fact that a lot of times we assume managers or leaders in organizations, we, we kind of just assume leadership is an inherent ability. It's a trait that maybe doesn't need to be fostered. It's just something you've got or you don't. And But uh, the person was arguing that we probably need to, to actually – have a track for leaders, like have a track, a very specific track, and it could be, I guess, leaders or managers that, where they actually are, they're they're not just performers or tacticians or technicians doing a job, they're actually skilled in management and in human development and or and creating uh, organizational systems. And I mean, do you think do you think this research will support that? And and eventually. Does it make kind of the non-producer track just as important or the manager track just as important as the producer track? Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one of the really neat things that organizations are doing, too, for uh, potentially for high potential college grads and um, and other people coming into organizations is to have kind of a fast track uh, leadership development program where they see many different parts of the business. Maybe they'll spend six months in one location, um, for example, at a manufacturing plant, then six months at headquarters, and then six months at a distribution center. So they see different parts of the business um, and perhaps different product lines. And the goal is really to um, is to develop leaders, uh, not necessarily someone whose skills are entirely specialized, but really someone who can build organizations. Yeah. And and you know, you asked about like the uh, about you know, like again, like one of the, I think what I think one of the main lessons of this study is is this really shows that managers have special skills and good leaders. Sounds like you, you know you the previous um, uh, your your previous discussion. It's uh, you know those those skills are really valuable. Right. Um, they and they're not just because you're good at one job doesn't mean that you're going to be. A great leader, mm. and won't it? Wouldn't it make you happier? I mean, it seems like if I'm a top performer and I'm really good at it, um, get off my back, right? Like, so <laughs> a couple, a couple of things I see is that it's almost like we need to make a more dynamic environment where don't make me go be something I'm not good at, so I can earn more money and then be miserable and not get to do what I do well. But let me mm-hmm. be. Let me do what I'm good at. I mean, I've even just seen sometimes how we restrict um, how much time they have to be there, how much, what what specific activities they need oh, to right. be doing. I mean, it's all of these old organizational systems that may not play um, in this more dynamic world. Right. Yeah. So I think one of the other big trends in 
and work is that uh, is that what we call high performance work systems, which means they're a set of practices that work well together. So uh, I think one thing that would be uh, also bringing in people to the organization who are really good at working autonomously uh, and who could be really good at their at their jobs, giving them training in different aspects of the business, but then giving them a lot of autonomy once they arrive. And so by doing, and then also paying them according to their individual contributions. And so really, um, it's kind of like a, a nexus of different practices that organizations can use to attract the people who are going to work best autonomously, train them to, so they have the tools and the knowledge to work autonomously, and then give them the rewards for, uh, and the opportunity in the space to, to excel at their jobs and to meet the deliverables that you set out for them. That's and I think powerful. Are, yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the, such, a, such a neat trend, and it's not something you just see like in, uh, not just in sales or not just in, in, uh, in any one setting. It's something you see in factory floors. It's something you see um, in retail environments. It's something you see uh, for all sorts of jobs. And I think... Um, and I think it is really neat to see that some of these organizations that are adopting these practices are are very successful. They're, they tend to out from those that have that seem to be more stuck in a traditional model. Right. Well, and and the kind of the older school, the older, yeah, the kind of the older school or older mentality. I mean, at some point, what we need are results, and we I need you engaged and engagement's falling off like crazy and probably because we keep putting people where they don't necessarily fit, where they don't even want to be, but that's the only way we can get more money. Uh, Alan Benson, we appreciate you. Again, Dr. Alan Benson is a professor at uh, the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and uh, an expert um, in this uh, field in the Peter Principle, this discussion about how to really uh, motivate people to, to, and to be good at management and make sure we're hiring people for what they're really good at, not just what they um, what they have historically been able to do. Uh, interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can to also improve your personal life as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, life's uh, it's it's not always so easy, is it, to to achieve, to become what you want to become, and to hopefully lead your life in a healthier way. It's sometimes it's you're too tired, you're too worn out, and and we you know every year we set New Year's resolutions. Then you know by February we're done uh, pretending and. Then we just try to make it through the rest of the year. But one of the things I thought we could do is talk about some ways that we might be able to to just relook at how we how we try to improve our lives, right? So I'm a big believer that our thinking impacts our feelings. Uh, how we think about something impacts and, and, and might drive what we want to th- to feel or what we do feel about uh, a certain situation. Our feelings impact what we do, our actions. Our actions impact what we become, what we're getting. And so we could work on our thinking, we can work on our feelings, we can work on our doing, or we can work on what we're becoming and what we want to become. 
But in the end, a lot of times we just spend more and more time focusing on what we do, right? Uh, especially Americans. We're, we're, we're about what we do. It's about the action of things. But there is a lot of power in changing just how you think. So what, what do you want to think about more uh, in your life? What, what is it that you know uh, is not occupying your mind that needs to be? What thoughts tend to currently occupy your mind? And uh, keep your your mind, uh, you know, from being able to actually focus on healthier thoughts. What thoughts would you rather experience daily? And what can you do this year to incorporate more positive thoughts into your life? Some very basic questions. But uh, are you tired of thinking about not having enough? Are you tired of always thinking about how you're going to make ends meet? So if if we want to try to create a change in our lives, what what if we started thinking more about um, uh, healthier ways that we could move our life forward. But a lot of us don't have time to do that because I've still got to pay my bills for this week. And um, and so it occupies our time. But maybe if we could just adjust our thinking a little bit, ask a different question. You know, if you had a magic wand and um, and you all of a sudden had your bills being made, what would you spend your time thinking about? Right? You still have to work. You still have to go you know, to school, you still have to do everything you're supposed to be doing, but what would you what would you spend your time thinking about? How do you want to feel differently this year is another thing. What feelings have haunted your last year? What feelings do you want to change? If the feeling is that you're constantly behind the eight ball, then um, what would you rather feel? And just to simply identify what you'd rather feel, it can go a very long way in your life. I want to feel more hope. I want to feel more excitement about what I'm doing. I want to feel less stress, but more excitement about my prospects. By the way, you can take those thoughts and track it back, or those feelings, I mean, and track it back to thoughts that lead you to feel that way. If you're hopeless feeling, there's probably thoughts that drive you to that hopelessness. And we want to start just evaluating it. So when I coach people, I always draw this out and I draw it in a circle. Thoughts are at the top. Feelings are on the right side. Doing action is on the bottom. And what we're trying to become is on the left side. And I actually walk everybody through what thoughts do you have? What feelings do you have? What actions are you taking? We could be asking right now, what, what do we want to become this year? What do we need to do? And maybe not even just do, maybe a more important thing is what do we want to be? What do we want to become? What is the key here, right? Because being very clear about what you want to become will also tell you very clearly what we should be doing. But if we had a magic wand and you could become anything you wanted to be, what would you want to be? I want to be a better grandparent. Now, the mere fact I want to be a better grandparent and uh, father-in-law, then that's something that helps me understand today what I should do. That also would help me understand what I, what kind of a feeling I need to create, what kind of uh, emotional, you know, situation I need to set up. And those are all critical. They're all important for me to know about. And also, another question we could ask is, what do we want to be attuned to this year? I want to be focused and more attuned to, connected into. Um, a sense of connection to others. I want to be present more. I just feel it's, I, I need to be more present. 
So simple things we could be looking at. What, do you, what relationships do you want to attune to? What do you want to become this year? What uh, feelings do you want to feel this year for the rest of the year? And what thoughts do you want to have more of? And just answer those questions. And then ask yourself one simple question. What's the most important thing I can do today to start getting there? To change my thinking, to change my feeling, to change my doing, to change what I'm becoming. To get attuned. It's just life, right? We just take it a day at a time and one question at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about trusting each other. How do you uh, manage uh, the trust but verify approach? Nan Russell is the author, a speaker, a mentor, and a workplace consultant. She's the former vice president of a multi-billion dollar company, uh, QVC, the Home Shopping Network. And uh, we talked to her a while ago about uh, the, the old trust but verify approach that we use with our relationships and with the people that are most important to us in our life. And, um, and, and she gave us some really cool insight. I began the interview by pointing out that if I don't trust you, it impacts everything I can ever do with you. That's really true. Unfortunately, we get it mixed up. It's one of those words that we interchange with a lot of things. Yeah. So while trust is essential, uh, we kind of make it more global than it really is. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, you wrote a wonderful article um, that is called The Problem, like with that trust and verify. That's what people always say. Look, I need to trust this person, but you you, you got to verify. You got to make sure you got to tr- you can trust them. That seems almost contradictory. It is, depending on what it refers to. And I think that's where people get confused. So if, you know, if it's a life or death situation, if you're, you know, working on purity of pharmaceutical things that are going to affect people's livelihood and life, then you're going to want to trust but verify. So that's a whole different strategy than what most of us have in our day-to-day life. We're not worried about, you know, safety and security issues that are life-threatening. And in that case, what that does is exactly what you said. You know, if I use a trust but verify approach, I'm really saying I don't really trust you. Prove it. Yeah, I'm going to keep following up. you got to earn it with me. And what we know now that we didn't know before is that, you know, trust, the, the kind of trust that works in relationships is relationship trust. And that is developed and created and evolves in very different ways. Yeah. It's um... – I mean, because that's what I've always wondered. Do you do you give trust? And and at some point you do by like by me letting my kids do something. I'm showing, okay, I trust you. I've trained you. I've I've trusted you. And or is it earned? And and there's always this weird debate. And really, it seems like it's the glue of our of our interpersonal relationships, isn't it? Trust is the thing that glues us together and that it almost allows us to have deeper relationships and you know by how the way trust goes is the way our relationship goes yeah it definitely is one of those things that is going to impact whether you have what i refer to as a genuine relationship yeah um or 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 not and you know one of the things you brought up is key and that's the sense of like you know how do we give trust and do we give trust and and how does that work now, one of the, 
the misconceptions about trust has to do with the fact that, you know, it, it is kind of the, you know, some people see it like a screensaver. You know, I do it, I build it once and it's there. Um, and what we know is that, that trust really, in order to work in a relationship, whether it's with your kids or with your boss, um, it's, it has to be used as a verb. It's something you make. It's about actions. And it's also about accountability on the other side. So, but people think that I either trust you or I don't. Mm. Like it's a light switch. Yeah. And the way uh, relationship trust works is it's, it's really incremental over time. And there's accountability on the other side. So if you give your your kid a little bit of trust and you say, hey, you know, call me when you get there. Um, if they do, if they text you, if they let you know that, then you're going to give them a little bit more. If they don't, you're going to pull it in. Yeah. Um, and we do that all the time with different re- relationships that we have. And you see, I mean, you're an organizational leader. You, you see, though, that we could actually, you know, forge trust, the verb, in, in an organization and actually kind of drive it deep throughout the organization if, if I guess if we're approaching it right. Well, and that's one of the very exciting things that has happened out of what is chaos and some not good things during the Great Recession. And the good thing is that you, you add the things that happen to our economy with the changes in technology and the way people get information. And what we now know is that trust doesn't have to start from the top. It can start anywhere. And that people work for people and want to work in groups of people that they trust. So anybody, regardless of position, regardless of where they are in an organization, can trust, can start their own pocket of trust. And, you know, that's where all the great things happen. All you have to do is look around any good organization and you'll see energy and fun and things that are occurring that aren't occurring other places. And you know that that's a pocket of trust. Oh, yeah. So a pocket of trust would be just maybe a team, a group that really works well together. They they do trust each other, um, that there is accountability to each other for results and, and for being trustworthy people. Yes. And they are all invested in that relationship, in whatever it is that needs to get done. That that the 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 fuel for engagement, people talk about engagement being a problem at work or yeah. engagement in, in lots of environments. Um, engagement is a symptom. Lack of engagement is a symptom of a problem of distrust because you can't really be engaged <laughs> um, if you don't have a trusting environment to yeah. feel that. That is so true. And if you – if I dodge – I mean if I'm not actively engaged in doing something, then I'm going to lower trust – Anyway, and so so really that that is that that um, it, it's like it is a currency, isn't it? And it makes us more effective together, or it kind of weakens us depending on that space between. Yes, and and um, one of the things that's changed a lot dramatically in the way in which trust is used as a currency is the fact that now so much of what we need in organizations and in communities is for people to add their discretionary effort, provide their insights and ideas. Those are not things we can crowbar from people. People have to give them freely. And the only reason they're going to do that is if they feel um, kind of that genuine relationship and that trust that's there that says this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's that's one of the key components. Now talk about that. What what do you term a mutually beneficial? 
or, or what do you term a mutually beneficial relationship? My needs are being met. Your needs are being met. What exactly makes it mutually beneficial? And, and make sure that I will add my discretionary efforts. There's, there's basic kinds of things, which is if, if I want the best for you, if, and that's, that's a huge if. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I do, that's, that's clearly displayed by the behaviors that I have associated with not only the way I may interact with you, but the kind of information I decide to provide. So, so I use something called thoughtful transparency. And that means that if, if you're in a genuine relationship, you're providing the other person with the information that they need to have good integrity, to make good decisions, to create their own decisions about their life. You are realizing that they need to have that to do great work, to, to you know, show up and, and um, use their gifts in the world. And, and that orientation says it's, it's never manipulative. It, it has a positive intention behind it. And there is an authenticity about the fact that um, you're kind of in it for the long term. I'm going to put long term in quotes, but um, of the relationship, meaning that it's not about one single outcome. It's about a long term. You benefit, I benefit, we can do something good together. Yeah. You you also have used the term um, authentic trust. What what does that what does that mean? Is that kind of part of this the, what you're talking about? That it's it's it really is me being into you. It's me truly wanting what's best for you. Yeah, authentic trust is the kind of trust that that um, works. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are lots of other kinds of trust, and and I don't want to say or or minimize the value of that, but authentic trust otherwise referred to as relationship trust, is the kind of trust that, that you and I are talking about. It's the trust that comes with a verb. It comes with actions. It comes with wanting to build those kinds of genuine relationships and operate with, you know, not only kind of the, the, the best sense for both people, but we're not in it for our own. Uh, there's a bigger purpose. Mm. Um, and people who who align behind the fact that, um, you know, they want to contribute to the world. They want to make a difference. That kind of trust that builds as, as a result of that in, in an organization or, or in a group um, is very powerful. It's also the kind of trust that can be, if broken, it can be redeveloped. Um, and it's not what often we think of trust. Most people define trust in a very basic terms, and they think of it more like the kind of trust we had as children. Um, where, you know, you, you, you sort of give absolute categorical trust to a parent or, or someone else in your life. That's not authentic trust. It realizes there's risks. And, it, you know, you have to make good judgments. You don't give the same amount of trust to everybody. You understand it has to be um, an ongoing developmental action hmm. and, and thoughtful. That was Nan Russell, um, again, uh, author, speaker, mentor, and workplace consultant, teaching us about uh, trust and authentic trust. Again, our goal on the show is to help all of us become a lot better at uh, being human, at being an effective, healthy person on this earth, and, and lifting those around us as we go. We will continue the journey, folks, more straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this program to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Joined by uh, Terry and Becca, the gang is gathered. They have been uh, pounding the internet all night long to get the greatest and latest stories, the information you need to know. Just pummeling my computer at home. It was great. (laughs) Your wife's like, can you quit hitting the Palm Pilot? What's it called? The lap? uh, What's that little device? No, the other one. iPad? iPad. There you go. Yeah. Sometimes I can't get my brain to work in the morning. And I don't use the iPad. Yeah, that's the missus. It's just not enough features on the iPad to to function correctly when you're pounding the internet. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Lots to cover today. Great news. Um, uh, Apparently, President Bush Sr., Herbert Walker Bush, is alert and talking, but is still in intensive care. With sepsis. Sepsis, yeah. An infection turned to sepsis, which is blood infection, Blood poisoning, basically. So they say he's responding to treatment. That's great. I feel bad for him. My, it's funny. My wife has a really interesting theory. She, when people age, my wife has more compassion for an aged, an aged uh, male, mm. and I seem to have more compassion for an aging female. Huh? She's very compassionate for an aging male. What is and that? So I don't know. I think it's just, she just thinks he needs more love. Mm. So, which is great for me because I am an aging male. Okay. Not aging. Yeah, that works out well. Yeah. Everything's turning up mad. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. So great news with President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. That, by the way, the funeral was a beautiful funeral. And then you could see how when your wife passes away, you think, you know what? I Maybe it's my time to get out of here. Go be with my queen. Yeah. Or maybe you just got an infection. Maybe. Either way. Uh, lots to cover today, too. We're going to be talking about why employees why why you don't ask for help from your coworkers never show weakness like i don't think you've ever asked me for help really i don't think you've ever asked me for anything i don't know but i get a lot of free advice it's, it's kind of strange well that's more for your wife she calls yeah. <laughs> she won't leave me alone uh, so. I, i'll tell you about something you know what you should do yeah you know what you got to do is and this. then i go and then i sit down cuz it's going to be a minute it's going to be a minute and I've saved your family, your life, your 401k, mm. and all those other things. Yeah. It's, it's, been, it's a great situation to be able to come to work and get all of my free, like emotional, sort of interpersonal sort of relationship issues yeah. just resolved. Well, what I've been doing, though, is I've been actually keeping a tally of how oh. much you owe me. Yeah. yeah. If we go by hour. Yeah. Kind of it's a lot of yeah. Well, it's, it is, hmm. but we'll, I'll send you a bill. Okay. Well, great. Uh, we will be talking about why you don't, why you Terry don't ask for help from others, or why anybody, why we don't tend to go to our coworkers. Well, normally because when I ask, I'm told there's a document somewhere on the server, and I can look <laughs> at the document. Yeah, <laughs> that's we've, fair. We've, we've created a really cool uh, learning tool here at BYU Broadcasting where you a lot of the learning is there. You just got to go yeah. find it. Right? Like, how do you do this? Well, there's this document. You're like, uh, And by the way, okay. af- now after five and a half years, I, I think it's probably time I learn to get on the server. Yes. 
<laughs> There's a server? Because that's something I haven't been in a big hurry. It's all right. You haven't missed much. Yeah. I figure because what I do, I like to just ask you, yeah, and then you go to the server. No, then you go ask someone else, and then they tell you to look at the server. That's the what document. I do. Yeah. That's yeah. what I do. See, Becca knows. It's all about a system. From Asking now on, I'll Terry ask Becca to way ask more. Terry. Oh, there we go. That's perfect. That's the good way to do it. Uh, let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? The Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted Monday ten to nine in favor of Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, to Dale. become the next Secretary of State. So ten. To nine. Ten to nine. So uh, he's in. So Rand, he goes to the full floor. Rand Paul from Kentucky first said, I am completely against this pick. It'll take a lot to uh, get me to change my position. And Trump said he's, that Pompeo has changed his position on one thing. And Rand Paul went, all right, cool. Oh, okay, done deal. He goes, yeah, I think the Iraq war was a bad idea. Where Pompeo was saying before, he was, you know, thought it was a good idea. Interesting. So, you know, they, he switched that. So, so somebody board. needs to go figure out what what really made Rand switch. The full Senate will vote later this week. I think it was more Trump stakes. We'll see when Kentucky gets a new highway or something. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats are again facing off in a special election. If you're bored and you need something to put you to sleep, you can pay attention to Arizona's 8th District today as uh. they uh, work to replace uh, Trent Franks. Who resigned his seat in December? He's a representative there. Resigned his seat amid uh, allegations of sexual misconduct. Oh yeah. Uh, Democratic victory in Tuesday's special election would come as a major surprise with political observers nearly unanimously in their expectation that the GOP will manage to win. However, mm-hmm. they're showing in the polls that the Democrats are performing rather well for a Democrat in that district. Wow. What if a Democrat snuck that little district? Now, they won't win the district, but they say, because later on they have to uh, but they're vote. trending? There's a Senate seat coming up uh, later this in November. Yeah, Flakes, right? Flakes Senate seat. And uh, they're concerned that m- maybe the Democrats have a strong showing here, and that energizes Democrats in the state. <laughs> and people who aren't necessarily happy or Ooh, whatever. So Maybe the Dems are going to make a big move. Now, this is the district. It's located uh, western Phoenix suburbs. It's a haven for retirees. Mm-hmm. And it's also home to uh, Marac- it's home of Maricopa County, where you have yeah. uh, Joe By the Arpaio. way, do you know what Maricopa stands for? Means? No. What is it? What is it? You do you know? know? Are you going to knows. I can look it up. Oh, I'm looking it up right now. Oh. I think it means butterfly. Butterfly? I think that's mariposa. The eighth went uh, strong Republican for Mitt it's Romney. It's an ugly butterfly. It's like a... It's like Maricopa. A, a Maricopa is an ugly butterfly like a moth. Right. So, again, concerns that maybe there's a Democratic uprising in Arizona and then needs oh, to be squelched. Maricopa. It's an, Indi- it's, it's an Indian people of the Gila River Valley in Arizona. There you go. That's cool. Maricopa. Well, See, now I feel bad. We're trying to help everybody learn as we go along. Okay. Continue. So the Democrat there is running on a uh, a ticket talking about how Republicans chose to give tax breaks to big companies instead of maybe shoring up Medicare, Medicaid for the yeah. old retirees. Oh, and it boy. seems to be working. <laughs> Talking oh, about healthcare boy. that way. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Facebook Inc. said it was available, able to remove a larger amount of content from the Islamic State and Al Qaeda in the first quarter of 2018 by, quote, actively looking for it. Oh, really? The company. You just had to, Facebook just had to look for it. Yeah. 
actively. The company has trained its review systems, both human and computer, to seek out posts from terrorist groups. The social network took action on 1.9 million pieces of content from those groups in the first three months of the year, about twice as many as the previous quarter, and 99% of that content wasn't reported first by users. Huh. Usually they wait, the user reports it, then they take it down. Right, right, right. Now they're just looking for it. Well, good for them. It's about time. There's a lot of reaction online, like, really? Now you're just doing what you were telling us you were doing before? They, I guess they used to, but maybe this makes sense in kind of the evolution of things. Is I, that I guess, The yeah. users used to do a lot of the work, and Facebook just made a lot of the money. Now the users do a lot of the work, and Facebook is starting to work. Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, they have historically put the onus on its users to flag content that its moderators needed to look at. After pressure from governments to recognize its immense power over the spread of terrorist propaganda, Facebook started about a year ago to take more of a direct responsibility and actually go to that search bar at the top yeah, and yeah. actually use that more in a functional way. Oh, like yeah, like terrorists. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. You just got to wonder, like, is this, how does this compare to the things like sharing data or targeted advertising, Cambridge Analytica? You know, yeah, they're, ba- they're in baby trouble. steps. We'll start with beheadings and we'll move on to your private data. YouTube took down more than 8 million videos in three months. Most of these 8 million videos, 76%, were taken down before receiving any views from users. Oh. They're both kind of doing the same thing. They're just searching their own websites, taking right. down bad things. This is not a bad idea. Amazon has embarked on an ambitious top-secret plan to build domestic robots, according to people familiar with the plan. Ooh. Codenamed uh, v- Vesta, V-S-T-A? V- Vesta? Vesta? Yeah, Vesta. So the Roman goddess of hearth, hearth, home, and family. It's kind of their project. The project comes from the division responsible for Amazon devices such as the Echo, Fire TV, Fire Tablets, and the ill-fated and huge mistake of a Fire phone. (laughs) Uh, People debriefed on the plan say the company hopes to begin seating the robots in employees' homes by the end of this year and potentially with consumers as early as 2019. Although that timeline could change and the whole program could be scrapped because apparently they do that quite often. It's unclear what task an Amazon robot might perform. People familiar with the project speculate that the robot could be a sort of mobile uh, echo type thing. So you just kind of call out and it will answer you type of thing. Yes, man. Uh, Prototypes of the robots have advanced cameras, computer vision software that can navigate through homes like a self-driving car and offer companionship or perform basic chores what chore would you like a robot to do for you matt mow the lawn mow the lawn they have those robots discipline my children there you go domestic chores fold the socks yeah probably laundry would be good too I find, spend... find the sock <gasps> i found one behind the, the washing machine how great when you could say robot here is what this is what the other one looks like find me that other sock huh? the next thing you know it's like gnawing on your son's ankle <laughs> just his right ankle yeah I mean, alexa if Stop gnawing on my son's ankle. If it's if an, if it, the sock is caught inside a shirt or a pant leg, that'd be oh, yeah. kind of dangerous. You may want to put in some uh, parameters there. I don't know that I want all these robots around. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, might as well. I mean. People are just sitting around with nothing to do, so but, make robots. Oh, I'm so mad because I live at this time when I'm the one that has to educate my robot. Mm. In 50 years, the robot will come educated. That's right. And we'll be educating the Blasted, kids. Blasted, I know. What are you going to do? Finally, Dylan McWilliams doesn't believe that old, uh, the old saying about lightning never strikes twice. Uh-oh. Uh, not after he was attacked on, by a shark Thursday in the waters off Kauai. 
Hawaii less than a year after he was mauled by and dragged by a black bear in the wilds of Colorado, and certainly not after he was bitten by a rattlesnake in Utah a little over three years ago. Okay, this guy's what? got a problem. He he loves the outdoors. Here, kitty, he, kitty, uh, kitty, kitty. He's a former tree trimmer, ranch hand, survival training instructor who loves extended journeys in the wilderness, and he's continually getting attacked by animals and keeps going out there. Hey, Mom, look at that hose. Honey, that's a snake. <laughs> so, snake in Utah, bear in Colorado, and now a shark in Hawaii. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even go to a petting zoo at that point. This guy's. I mean, that can't be possible, can it? Who gets in that much trouble? I don't mind that it's happening to him instead of me. You know, if the statistics have to be divided. But don't date that guy. Distributed somewhere. Yeah. That guy's a train wreck. Absolutely not. (laughs) Do you want to go watch the sunset on the top of that mountain? No. No, I don't. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know what it is. I just don't feel safe with you. Anyway, thank heaven. See, one of the good things about the show is you get to see that it could be worse. Yeah. We learned some Spanish today. Yeah. Some we, yeah, uh, uh, actually it wasn't Spanish. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, it was just. I guess it's it was Native American Maricopa. Oh, that's right. <sighs> but we did learn that mariposa is a butterfly. That's true. Yeah. So now we're trilingual. So that's why I've got to use my language more. <laughs> hey, up next we're going to talk about why we don't ask for help from our coworkers. They're right there, and because we don't ask, it actually may impact us and our excitement about working, and we may work longer because we don't ask for help. So uh, how we can break that uh, barrier and start asking for help straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. All of us find it difficult to ask for help sometimes. Maybe it's because we don't trust a coworker, or perhaps we are just trying to be more self-reliant. We don't want to look like we need help. Whatever the reason, studies have shown that when we don't ask for help uh, from others, um, that uh, that not only our performance will suffer, but our team performance suffers as well. So here to speak with us about this today is uh, Mark Bolino. He's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, and he specializes in organizational behavior, international business, and human resources management. Uh, Dr. Bolino, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here, Matt. Nice to talk to you. You bet. Why? What is it about us? Why won't we just ask for help? you know, at work when we, when we have too much work to do? Well, I think when we are in these situations at work, we're very conscious about how we look to others, how we're going to look to our coworkers, how we're going to look to our boss. And so I think some of that is, is behind it. Um, but, but really, when we need help, we start asking a lot of questions about, you know, why is it that I need help? Is it that this is too difficult for me? Is this, um, you know, something that I don't have the skills to do? Or, you know, maybe it's a legitimate reason. We start going through all of these, you know, processes in our mind about our image, about what it says about us, about what it says about others. And I think that's where we get sort of sort of caught up. Mm. Is it... Is this self-imposed? I mean, is this something we've learned not to do because of how we've been managed, how we, how we've kind of grown up in the company, or, or is it is it or is it so is, has it been imposed by the company and the systems and the organization, or is it me just being insecure about me? 
Well, it's probably a combination of those things, honestly. Um, I'm not sure we know definitively what the, what the causes are. If you look at sort of the basic uh, research in social psychology, we, people just have a uh, sort of a, a fundamental apprehension about being helped. It, it raises these questions about our competence. It raises questions about are we going to have to return the favor and, and psychologically we don't like to be uh, sort of constrained in our behavior. And so if you help me, that means the norm of reciprocity says I'm going to help you in return. And so, you know, there's something about that um, where I don't want to have to be, you know, hemmed in in that way. So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's sort of a fundamental psychology behind it. But then, yes, the the organization that we're in and the, you know, the expectations that the boss sets in terms of whether it's good to be helping others and to be receiving help, those also shape, you know, our decisions. We take all of that into account. Does, um, because it seems like if I, if I choose to work alone and not work um, with others, then I probably have to work longer. So is this one of the reasons why we are working so much longer. Well, sure, I would say that, you know, that can contribute to it, right? Um, you know, we just did a, a recent study looking at sort of the implications of, of, uh, of not accepting help or about having negative beliefs about accepting help from other people. And one of the things that people said was, you know, even if I'm drowning in my work, I would be, you know, I would rather work on it myself and get it done. And so, you know, I I think there are people, you know, the reluctance to accept help from other people or to ask for help when they need it is contributing to this sort of overload and burnout and that sort of thing. What what else do you see happening because uh, we're unwilling to ask or unable to ask? How is it impacting our work life? Well, you know, again, this the this study that we did recently, we were looking at these beliefs about, you know, sort of negative beliefs that people had about accepting help. And one of the things that we found was that people that had these more negative beliefs about accepting help, you know, their job performance was systematically lower in terms of their, uh, what they did formally, their, you know, their formally assigned tasks. It also undermined their willingness to help other people and be cooperative and sort of go the extra mile. Uh, and perhaps that is because they're uh, they're too busy themselves to to sort of give extra, or um, or maybe it's because they're not receiving help. They don't feel like they have to. We weren't able to to tease that apart, but but they were less creative because they're sort of in their own little world, perhaps. Um, you know, so it 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 affected their job performance negatively. It, it also affected uh, their work attitudes. They were less less satisfied and. Uh, more likely to be thinking about uh, leaving the organization, um, and and really they were see, seen less favorably by their supervisors. Mm. So uh, even though they sort of there's sort of this idea that if I'm refusing help or 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 not accepting help, that that somehow that's going to make me look self-sufficient and more competent. It, you know, at least our preliminary data suggests that. Supervisors had more favorable views of the employees who were more engaged in in helping and and receiving help and that that sort of thing. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? So so those that aren't willing to get as much help 
um, or help others or have just negative attitudes about it, they're they're less creative, they're less satisfied, and they're actually less appreciated, less liked. Yeah. 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 So I think sometimes people are, you know, we we found that one of the big reasons why people were reluctant to accept help was that they thought it was going to sort of undermine their image at work, you know, that they were someone who needed help or couldn't get it done on their own. And really, our findings sort of suggest the opposite, that it was, you know, people who who were willing to, to accept help, uh, that those people were seen more favorably by supervisors than people who had sort of these, these negative attitudes about, about being helped. And we, we know from other studies that being helpful at work is, is generally seen positively by supervisors, too. So, um, you, you know, helping behavior is important for a collaborative environment, which uh, clearly organizations are. And so if you're, if you're not willing to engage in that sort of behavior, uh, both giving it and receiving it, then it probably is going to reflect poorly on you. Hmm. Did you. Do you have any idea of the percentage of people that – have kind of those negative paradigms around helping, receiving, and giving help. Is it a yeah, so is it a big we, percentage? It, well, we when we looked at um, at some of our data, we had about half our respondents sort of agreed with this idea that if you accept help, somehow it undermines your competence. Um, and, and then we had we, there were there were a couple other reasons that we found that people were reluctant. About twenty percent said that they were reluctant to, to accept help because they didn't want to feel obligated. They thought if they, they accepted the help, then that would, they would be obligated to return the favor. Um, and then we also found a smaller percentage, like 8 to 10 percent, had misgivings about their coworkers' intentions, about why they're helping them. Are they somehow trying to make them look uh, bad for needing the help or, you know, that they had some sort of ulterior motive? Or that the coworkers were just, you know, not very competent. Um, but those were a smaller percentage of people. Interesting. So it's it's almost like we're a little neurotic. We're we're a little um, worried that either they're out to get us. They they obviously can't do it as well as we can. I don't want to owe you anything. Um, but in the end, all of these paradigms, all of these attitudes make it so others actually trust us less, want to do more, do less with us, and don't necessarily promote us or managers don't necessarily revere us. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and we don't know for, you, you know, we weren't able to tease out specifically how, you know, why people have these particular beliefs or, um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, some of this could be because of the organizational context. I mean, yeah. you may be in an organizational setting where you are the most competent person, and so accepting help from people, you know, could slow you down. Or you happen to work for a supervisor who's, you know, who does sort of promote a lot of individuality in the workplace, and so maybe it is going to make you look badly. So we don't, we're not able to sort of evaluate whether these were legitimate uh, negative beliefs that people were harboring, but um, but they held these beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, as you as you look at it in the research uh, too, I mean, it seems like in in the end, organizationally, we probably need to figure out a way to 
to foster more interdependence, more cooperation, more team building. What are some of your your suggestions there? Well, I, I think I think we have to recognize that you know I, I guess as you were saying that people are are sort of neurotic about all of these uh, all of these issues, and so we need to to maybe confront them head on and, and sort of realize that people are going to maybe have this natural tendency to be reluctant to accept help. And so that means as, as managers and, and, you know, as, as employees that we want to, we want to try and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're all interdependent here. We're all working collectively towards a goal and, and it doesn't make sense for us to sort of be, you know, individual operators, you know, that, and, and, sit down with with employees and say you know do you need help or um you know make it more acceptable for people to help one another and to to make time for that maybe recognize those efforts in sort of positive ways when people are willing to ask for help and you know sort of praise people for being willing to ask for help and uh for being willing to accept help you, you know making those norms um different in, in terms of the acceptability, I think, would address some of these concerns that people have in the back of their minds. Um, we want to we think about what those concerns are and then, you know, sort of address them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, even incentivizing it, like you were saying, holding holding the cooperative person up as a star, right? The, instead exactly. of Instead of holding the independent individual up as the star. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, you know, there's a fine line... Um, you know, some of my research is looking at what makes employees willing to go beyond the call of duty in different ways, helping others, staying late, things like that. And and a lot of times when you talk to managers, what they want to do is, is sort of say, oh, okay, well, if you want more of that, we'll just pay them for it, right? So when I hear the word incentivize, I get a little bit nervous because part of what makes this behavior so valuable is that it's not really formally required you know we we want to we don't want to turn all of this stuff into you have to do this because it's part of your job right you want it to sort of occur naturally so it's sort of getting a balance so incentivizing it in in the sense of um making it acceptable holding those people out as as model employees i like that idea um if we're talking about sort of uh, formally incentivizing with with bonuses and things like that, putting it in people's performance evaluations, I, I, I might be a little bit more cautious about you know thinking about the costs and benefits of of doing that. Right. I guess too we look at it. Um, I mean, we we hold up our long hours and our incredible work ethic and um, stick to itiveness as these signs that we're really great but then in the end we end up working such long hours and taking work home how awesome would it be if our work allowed it that we were kind of our goal was to complete a lot more as a team and you know we all could help each other and we all go home a little earlier yeah yeah i i think that you know it's it's not sustainable for most people to to sort of keep you know, doing more and more and more, and that's what's happening a lot in in organizations today. Is um, you know, people are taking on more than they can handle, um, and and they're getting it done sometimes, but but sort of at what cost? 
you, you know, especially personally in terms of your health and your family, that sort of thing. Right. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Mark Bolino. He is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and is at, uh, at the Price College of Business at the University of Oklahoma and specializes in organizational behavior, international business, and human resource management. Is I mean, I guess some of this um, – it almost seems like we're moving into a new era, a new a new time where um, at some point we've got to, I guess, manage our efficiencies a little bit better. And I, I don't I guess I'm just trying to figure out how we how we teach this. And so because there is such an independent culture in our workplace that I want to I want to look good. And if I'm always competing against the person next to me. Then it actually there is a disincentive. It seems like to cooperate. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I, I think a lot of organizations have sort of set that up where, you, you know, you you sort of see the more you can do that that's kind of your pathway up the up the, you know, you know up the career ladder, um, and you know, in the short term, for, I think for a lot of organizations, you know, they see that as sort of a positive, and and I think I'm concerned in my research about, you know, how sustainable is that? You know, we, I talk about these behaviors, um, we call them citizenship behaviors, these sort of extra things that people do that contribute to the organization. Mm -hmm. And I've done some research on something I call citizenship fatigue, which is where eventually people start getting tired of being the person who's taking on all of these extra things. And what we found is that when people reach that point, they start cutting back on their citizenship. It's just not a sustainable, um, you know, a sustainable sort of thing. So, you know, one thing I think that a lot of companies can think about is how can I increase the engagement of other people in the organization? Because that's another thing that we see if you look at sort of those Gallup studies where they look at how engaged people are. Right. It's only about a third of workers who say that they are engaged, and then there's probably like eighteen um, percent or so that are that are disengaged, and then there's a group that's sort of in the middle. They're they're not highly engaged. They're just sort of going through the motions at work. Well, I think a lot of the burden is falling on that third. You know, there's yeah. people who are engaged, keep having to do more and more and more because you have so many people who are not very engaged or even actively disengaged, sort of pulling against what the company is trying to do. And so if you could if you could increase the levels of engagement among those people who aren't really turned on at work and and are, are sort of disgruntled at work, then I think you could take the burden off of that third that is, you know, highly motivated. Yeah, because absolutely. They that motivation, you know, indefinitely. Well, and especially when we um, sit there and we spend uh, all of this other time it, 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 trying to be a good citizen, and then I'm the only one in the room doing it, man, no wonder. Exactly. Then you lose your good third. Yes, <laughs> then your sure. good third. Yes. I mean, that's a scary day when the yes. good third's exhausted. And, and in fact, that was one of the things that we found was, you, you know, people didn't mind going the extra mile as much when they felt like they were really part of a team where where they knew that other people would sort of be reciprocating that behavior. Right. You know, so it is just like you're saying, the findings bear that out, that it's, 
it's worse when you feel like you're the only one yeah. who, who's sort of going the extra mile. Oh, that's intense. That's a scary day. Uh, Professor Mark Bellino, thank you so much for your insight. Uh, great insight into why we don't let coworkers help us. Uh, more uh, um, you know, insights, really, than every one of us need to pick up our game. We need to ask help when we need it. We need to, to push cooperative behavior and more interdependence in our own workplace and allow people to help. Uh, so that becomes the norm. And uh, we'll keep giving you the ideas, the tools you need to uh, make your workplace a place you really want to be engaged in. And you can also go look up more Mark Bolino from the University of Oklahoma to find out uh, more of his writings as well. We'll continue the journey a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. So you and the you and your spouse, do you do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect, or do you end up tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times? I wanted to uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I found, a lot of the clients I work with, they might – one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be you know, a cyclist and so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile uh, cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life and your conversations talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food – You know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building a a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, Find out, uh, you know, you, you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt. And you might go, you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors. And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and you know, getting your family ready to, to send out to go, to, to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. 
And so it, that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We don't we don't engage in other activities. Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, a lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I can I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough – whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, Try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. little coach's corner for you. You know, just ideas, folks. You don't have to do them. You can keep just doing what you're doing. We're here, though, to give you the tools, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, she joined the show to share some strategies on how to change yourself and how to change others. I began the discussion by asking for more tips on how to change yourself uh, first and then others. So if we're changing out of guilt or obligation or because we feel forced to by someone else, the change isn't going to be as positive and it may not even happen. You've got to have the right why that you're changing and it really needs to be a love and passion motivated reason. So I I really have my clients sit down and define why do I want to change? Yeah. Is it just so my wife won't leave me? Or do I want to be different? Do I want to be happier? What's the real Cuz if it's the negative it may not stick. Like I don't I want to change cuz I don't want my kids to grow up with a bad dad. That's yeah. different than because I want to be a I want powerful a happier source. life. I want to be a good influence yeah. on my kids. I want, yeah. If it's driven more by passion and love, you'll you will be more motivated. Mm-hmm. If it's obligation, which is really what's happening, if your wife says change or I'm leaving you, 
it's just not got the same power it behind doesn't. it and it won't happen. Well, and then it almost just would breed fear, right? So then every iteration of it is going to kind of take you back to the same fear. Yeah, and it comes down to you it's you don't want to change. Yeah. You're doing it because you feel like you have yeah, to. I'm totally good with you me. You won't be motivated <laughs> unless you want to change. That's so true. You know, we see that with just diet and exercise. Yeah. If you're doing it cuz you should, you won't do it. Mm-hmm. You've Not got to do stick. it because you want this and you got to want it bad. It's so true. <laughs> so Man. check your motivation. Yeah. Um, my last one was just don't expect perfection because what? change is a process and it takes time. And any time you're trying to change, especially subconscious programming, things you learn from your parents to behave this way and you've behaved this way for yeah. 40 years – It's not going to change overnight. This is going to be a process. So give yourself some slack. Well, and every step matters, right? So because the change isn't 1 to 100. It's if you just go from 1 to 1.4, that that 0.4 increase matters. Absolutely. It's a layer that is yours now. You now own that 0.4 increase. If you just get to two, that's great. You own the two, you own the one point increase from one to two. It is progress. And every one of it, it's like, otherwise you'll build something that has some big inflated bubble in it that will collapse on you eventually. It's just line upon line. Absolutely. Well, you and I were talking on the break about the four stages of change and it's really helped my clients and coaches to kind of understand these. So the first level is unconsciously incompetent. And this is where most of us are in that we're behaving badly, but we're not really aware of yeah. it or why. It's just our programming. Things just are weird. Yeah. You don't even know why. I mean, it's probably them. But we're functioning from that 95% yeah. of our choices being unconscious. You're not, it's not, you're not in charge of it. You don't understand it. And you're incompetent. Yeah, behaving badly. And Which isn't a bad place to be. You think that's just normal. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice because you're naive. You're ignorant. You think it's okay that you're this way, (laughs) but it's really not. Exactly. So the first step in changing is to become consciously incompetent. Now, this is where we've explained to you why you're behaving this way and what you're doing and how it's not working. And you're working on it, but you really, you're still behaving badly. But now you see it. Uh, And for most of my clients, this is the most painful stage. Ignorance is better. (laughs) That's what people think. Ignorance is better than me now knowing. Yeah, so we teach them how to communicate properly with your spouse, and they keep fighting, and they forget to use the formula that we've taught them, and then they realize it, and they feel like a failure. This stage can be painful, but it's a necessary part of the process of change. You have to move through this stage. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do as we move through is to just keep practicing and doing the best you can. And like you said, a little improvement here and a little there, the change will come. Yeah, And we're moving towards stage three, which is consciously competent. Now, this is, I'm actually handling the argument with my husband the right way. I'm using the formula, but it is taking a great deal of effort. It's hard. Run through those stages Matt taught me. That's right. Stick to it. Stick to it. Discipline, discipline. It still might go sideways, but it's okay. You know why and you know what to do. But you're at least having more successes that you're doing it. It's just taking so much effort. Yeah. But the more that you do that, the easier it gets, and pretty soon you find yourself unconsciously competent. And what's happened is this new way of being has become your autopilot. It's now who you are to communicate that way. And this whole process may take years to go through. Yeah. But it's really the only way. You have to go through those steps 
And, and some people could be like my wife was born in a way with unconscious competency in in like communicating. She just does it well. Do you think her parents did it well? Yeah, so I she think, kinda yeah. learned it. It she, she was just better at it and just like she'll just take it on. She'll well, if there's a problem, let's just talk. She just would do it naturally, but didn't know what she was doing. Yeah, she you know didn't I mean? have a formula to uh-huh. it. She wasn't following a plan. She must have had great parents yeah. that just Yeah. And I think some of it just it right. might be even her nature. But then there were times where she would be unconsciously incompetent. Like She'd know, she wouldn't know how good she is, but also times she wouldn't know when she just stepped on my toe. You know what I mean? About yeah. something emotionally. And then she, but when she did and I would you know, have a problem, she'd just naturally go start working on fixing it. I just, I'm amazed at her. Like, wow, how do you know that? Because yeah. I had to study it to get it. Me too. And, but and it's I amazing. know there's a lot of people out there who are thinking I didn't have parents that knew how to communicate at all. Yeah. So I learned everything wrong and it can feel kind of overwhelming. Right, right. I mean, we're talking about changing those ingrained patterns. It's it can be discouraging. But then eventually you, you so you're you're just saying though, you can whatever level you are, start there, become aware, start to figure it out, think it through, learn the skills, get the help. Get some help. And then process, process, and eventually you can get to a point where it's just you. Yeah, You're competent. It's going to come. And we it's natural. It will. Uh-huh. It, it really is. And some of it is just overriding your natural fight or flight. Your natural fight or flight is such a big deal with your relationships or your change or your fears that drive the fight or flight. Well, and I, I find we're usually afraid of two things. We're either afraid of failure that we're going to try to change, but we won't yeah, be able to. And it would just be safer to stay where we are than mm-hmm. to try and fail. Right. So we, we kind of hold back or we're afraid of success. And this looks like I'm afraid that I will learn these things and then I'm going to have to be that mature and communicate on that high level the rest of my uh, life. And I don't know if I can live up uh, to that. I know. So it's safer to just stay dysfunctional. Isn't it funny? Because so, people think it's – I don't – oh, this takes forever. But it really doesn't. Once you're good at being effective and communicative and healthy, every, it goes faster. You don't have to hold a grudge for a week. Don't you think it kind of – it requires people though to trust us. Yeah. That you can change and that this works uh-huh. and you're going to get there. I'm, I always have people at the beginning that are just sure they're going to be our first failure <laughs> and it won't work yeah, for them. But totally. I, I promise yep. when you when you follow these steps and you get help from people that know what they're doing, anything can change. I'm sure oh, you, yeah. oh, you've miracles. seen people mm-hmm. that you – have you had people you've thought, oh, oh I don't know. Maybe, all the time. Maybe like, they can. Oh, here's the one. Here's the one that will never get it. <laughs> oh, they got it. Even if they just – because I just found even if they get half of it. Makes a big difference. Yeah, they're twice still. as good. Yeah, they, so it's just you don't need to get everything. Even just get what you can, and a little bit helps. And you, you'd be surprised at how much easier changes than you think it's going to oh, be yeah. if you follow this step. That was Kim Giles again from Clarity Point Coaching and uh, helping us all learn to change ourselves before we try to change everybody else in the world. It's just such a simpler approach, isn't it? Well, let's continue it more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the, in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good morning, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered and uh, we're ready for a great show today. We're going to be talking about what the flu does to your body. What's what, with all what the, the flu? What the flu? What's, it's all these aches and pains. Something's going on. And we think, uh, we, we might think that the pains are because the infection is infecting us and that makes our body ache. But it actually may be that our body is sending and doing certain things and the aching is a sign that it's actually responding to the flu. See, I mean, that's the same so thing. Aches like, and pains are good. Inflammation is a sign that your body's fighting back, but yes. it hurts. So that doesn't make any sense. Oh, it should never hurt. Now you're being negative. Oh. Yeah. It's a good thing. So we'll talk about in depth, probably more than you've ever wanted to know, but it's it's really cool information. It, it, it's always baffled me that peop, when you hear someone died of the flu. Yeah. When everyone's like, oh, it's just the flu. You're I mean, fine. Yeah, just fight it off. Just have some chicken soup, hang out a while, and you'll be fine. Yeah, watch Netflix. And it, it's a serious thing that we just sort of all take for granted because it's normally just sort of a minor inconvenience and you move on. Right. But if your body is weak in certain ways and you get the flu, then you may be in a world of uh, trouble hmm. and pain. So we'll uh, we will get into that interesting topic up in a few minutes. Also, um, speaking of world of pain, uh, the new the the embattled nominee for the VA job. By the way, a job that has about three hundred thousand employees. It's the second biggest department in the yeah. government. And the president uh, President Trump wants his doctor, Rear Admiral Admiral Ronnie Jackson, yeah. to be the guy that takes that seat. But now. Other information is coming out that may, uh, you know, create problems for the for Dr. Jackson. Mm. And but President Trump just thinks it's kind of like a witch hunt. So, you know, he's like, if I were Ronnie, I wouldn't do this. This was President Obama's doctor, too. Yeah. And President Bush's. I've heard that all three of them. Well, he he and Trump and uh, Bush all have written a recommendation. I've heard staffers. um from Obama talk about how great this guy is. He's a great guy. You go on trips and he's there. Everyone loves Ronnie. He yeah. comes in. He helps you out. He's right. just a great person. Right. And then all the, – and this, so before, you trust? before it was the guy's never managed anything close yeah. to being this complex. Right. Right. And so like we talked about the other day, the, what, the Peter syndrome, the Peter, Peter principle. principle. Yeah. The idea that you're promoting someone because they're good in one job. Yeah. So they're obviously going to do well here and that doesn't always track. No. Now it comes back that there's 20 people that came in and talked to one of the senators who sits on this approval committee <laughs> and he's like, what is all this? And there's there's uh, one of the uh, accusations is he's uh, miss, diet, miss what prescribing pills. Yeah. And it, what it is is on long flights. He'd walk down the aisle of Air Force One with the staffers and say, does anybody want to sleep? And he'd hand out Ambien pills. Yeah. And people are like, so he's just handing these pills out. Like so Skittles. The, the VA has, you know, the opioid issues. Mm-hmm. They have other, you know, dependency issues. And so does he see that as, do he can just hand out pills and it's yeah. fine? Well, I mean, they're sleeping pills, but that's kind of where the well, thoughts but, are. Yeah. Well, and he doesn't know the history of all these people. No. So you're going to hand an Ambien to somebody that maybe is on other meds that contradict or yeah anyway so that's kind of problematic there's a, there's some drunken episodes that they've been detailing but only and, drunken episodes while serving on a trip with the president yeah, when and secret service needed to intervene it's fine which by the way remember all the all the problems the president 
or the Secret Service has been having because of these drunken episodes with agents. That's right. Now the president's doctor himself. And, and yesterday, President Trump said that um, he wouldn't, if he was Ronnie, he wouldn't go forward with it. I would just get out because these politicians are going to just yeah. make it horrible for you. Which, but he, if he wants to run, I'll support him. And like you nominated him, and yeah. you're, you're acting he's all wishy washy about guy. what he's doing. Yeah. So I mean. Ah, uh, is it politics or is it just he picked a, he picked the wrong guy? It seems like a little bit of both here. Yeah, a, and a lot. I mean, the president's having a hard time apparently picking the right people. Pruitt still when now he, Pruitt is really getting deep. He only Pruitt said he only dealt when he was a member of Congress. He only dealt with people who donated to him. Well, yeah, duh. If why they donated why else money? Would you deal with I dealt with him. He goes, if they didn't donate, I wouldn't deal with him. If they donated, we might. That's kind of you have to. Or the, if they were going to donate, yeah. he would look at dealing. It's with It's a them. pay for play situation. It's Man, fine. We need to start getting donations. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? A big uh, day for the president. Federal judge ruled Tuesday that the Trump administration must temporarily resume the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program and shield some undocumented immigrants from deportation. Judge John D. Bates ordered that the Department of Homeland Security must accept and process new as well as renew DACA applications. Huh. So they have to bring in new people. They have to accept... They, the process needs to continue. Same as always. Going forward. Yeah. President Trump moved to end the program last September, but his efforts have faced numerous legal setbacks. Uh, the judge said the Justice Department's rationale for ending the Obama-era program was virtually unexplained. Yeah. So there's one strike for the president. He's like, oh, there's that. He's had a hard day, yeah. Today the Supreme Court is hearing its final oral arguments of the session on Wednesday and uh, today, and it's one of their highest profile cases of the year, Trump versus Hawaii. Uh-oh. Trump's travel ban from six majority Muslim countries. Trump's third iteration of this travel ban has been in full effect since December, but the challengers will argue that the ban on the uh, majority Muslim countries and a number of uh, limited uh, politicians, I believe, from Venezuela, is an unconstitutional manifestation of Trump's promised Muslim travel ban he made when he was running for president. That it all came from the same idea, from the first travel ban to the second to the third, that the whole uh, creation impetus of the whole thing was he stood there and said, we're going to ban Muslims. Oh, yeah. And then they walked it back, but they're saying, no, that's where this comes from. The Trump administration will say that the ban is a lawful exercise of the president's broad discretion over immigration and national security matters. The justices will uh, will also have to possibly decide on whether the president's tweets constitute policy statements. Wow. Because he talked about the Muslim ban. Like, at first he goes, it's not a Muslim ban. And then in the next sentence he says, it's a Muslim ban. (laughs) So... Oh, there's Twitter. the tweet. Now, Just so that's that's actually this could be could this be the final uh, you know nail in the in the coffin of tweeting because everything I he tweets can't be a policy statement. But he's but he's the president. The White House says that it is statements from the president. Sure, right. This is in effect a press release would be kind of what they're saying, right? But then they uh, then they want to have it both ways. And, oh no, 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 he was just he was just frustrated and venting he was just tweet balling so it's this the supreme court will have to deal with twitter yes uh a commission on college basketball 
yes. sharply directed the NCAA to take control of the sport, calling for sweeping reforms to separate pro and college track pro, uh, permit players to return to school after going undrafted by the NBA and ban cheating coaches for life. The independent commission, led by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, released a detailed 60-page report today, seven months after the group formed by the NCAA in response to the federal corruption investigation that rocked college basketball. Wow. But So the FBI is looking into it. They formed this commission, and they came back with some recommendations. Condi's on it. She is. There's 10 people, including some assistant coaches, have been charged in bribery and a kickback scheme. A high-profile program such as Arizona and Louisville and Kansas have been tied to a possible NCAA violations. Louisville was uh, tied to paying players. Co- coaches have been fired. Oh. You have uh, what the Arizona head coach is uh, reportedly on a uh, FBI wiretap talking about paying to get a player to Arizona, like something around $100,000. They've denied it all, but yeah. then the Board of Regents in Arizona said that if the coach is actually found to have lied about any of this he has to pay a fine to them type of thing they work that into his contract i believe so and the permanent firing of anybody that does this that's a great idea yeah so all kinds of different things so the ap gave me a a text this morning that really kind of sums up you and the ap are like yeah we're we're connected here it says uh, the panel calls on the ncaa to ban cheats so anyone that cheats on rules like coaches and stuff they're out end one and done so if a, a player comes in plays for one year in college basketball and then goes pro. Yeah. Because that's causing an environment for cheating because this guy's not going to stay for school, so we might as well get our agents in there and get our hooks in him before he goes pro. Oh, yeah. And that starts messing with the oh, college. Oh, so they would end that so you're not allowed they, to... They recommend that the NBA end their policy if you have to be 19 to get into get into the NBA. Oh, which, so that way which they could causes just the one-and-done problem in right. college basketball. Um, so no word on if the NBA wants to be part of it. Yeah. They want the NCAA to outsource enforcement. Oh, really? So have don't an outside agency be in charge Instead of, of the NCAA enforcing things sort of in an unmeasured, uneven sort of way. You know who they should get? Dog the Bounty Hunter. You could get Dog the Bounty He'd Hunter. He'd be fantastic. They also want to certify agents who are around these kids. Oh, make oh, sure they're so they legit. Have to like a legit licensed agent. They gave some recommendations on the AAU programs that are around the country because there's some issues with that. And also look at shoe companies and the relationship they have with universities because mm-hmm. they're causing an environment for corruption. Yes. Fun times. Uh, finally, John Hopkins, computer science professor, graded, announced that he's grading his students on the curve. The highest score in the final gets an A, and everyone else is graded accordingly. The clever students in the uh, Intermediate Programming, Computer Systems Fundamentals, and Introduction to Programming for Scientists and Engineers figured out that meant that if they all boycotted the exam, they'd all get an A. Oh, boy. So they organized a boycott, milling around in the hall outside the class where the exams were being sat, sternly reminding each other that if no one sat for the exam, they'd get straight A's. Ignoring the teacher's pleas to come in and sit down, the uh, the a professor praised his students afterwards for their solidarity. The students learned that by coming together, they can achieve something that individually they could never have done. At a school that is known perhaps unjustly for competitiveness, I didn't expect that reaching such an agreement was possible. So was was he he was okay with it? Was this part of the lesson? It wasn't clear if he was frustrated that nobody came into his exam. Yeah. But maybe afterwards he realized that they were thinking beyond the class 
to figure out a way through solidarity yeah. to achieve the grade they all want. And wanted. the mere fact that one of them, just you know the one, the one that has to always have the four, that one didn't go take the test. Apparently no one sat down for the test. Everyone he, got an A. Oh, wow. <laughs> they all got a zero, so everyone gets an A. That's amazing. And again, by the way, uh, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of thinking. Which is amazing on a high school or a college campus at times. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff we're going to be talking about straight ahead. What the flu actually does to your body? What's with all the aches, the pains? What's happening, and uh, and why could it be fatal for some? Interesting, interesting discussion straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about uh, flu and and the inf- and influenza. Um, you know, it's coming to an end, but it has been a pretty nasty season and um, a lot of deaths, uh, a high um, a high impact on a lot of uh, senior citizens, younger people as well, uh, infants. A lot of a lot of pain has been suffered because of. The body, your body, and the flu today or the, uh, this year. But what exactly is the flu? How does it affect our body? And uh, so we we wanted to bring in Dr. Lara Haynes. She's a PhD from the University of Connecticut Health and uh, is a professor of immunology there. And is uh, today going to walk us through um, what happens with the flu, how it impacts our body, how uh, it causes what it's, what it's doing when it's causing all the pains and the problems. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here. Talk to us about um, the flu, the influenza virus. What What is going on? I mean, we always know that we've got to get our flu shots. We know that the, the, it's, that it's a kind of a, a moving target, it seems like, that we're constantly having to, to fight it a different way or find a different way to fight it. It, it. Talk to us. Teach us about what is influenza and what's going on in our bodies as we start to, uh, to feel the impact of it. So the flu is a virus that enters your body via your, usually your respiratory system or other mucosal membranes. It could be your eyes or your mouth, whatever. And it gets into your um, upper airways in your lungs, and that's where it infects the cells. It'll bind to receptors on specific cells in your airways, and it will then get into the cells and begin to replicate because as, as any virus w- would want to do, it wants to make more of itself. And what our bodies will then do is try and stop that. Yeah. And so there's two kinds of uh, immune responses to a viral infection, such as flu. So the first that happens very quickly is the innate immune response. So this will happen to really any kind of infecting pathogen, so whether it be a flu or a virus, you'll have an immediate response, and it'll be production of uh, soluble mediators. So these are little, little molecules that are really telling the rest of the immune system, hey, something's going on. We need to get up and get fighting because we've been invaded, basically. Mm. 
and uh, they respond to specific uh, molecules that are on the virus. So the virus itself triggers the immune response. These then these these little molecules that are sent out uh, start activating, for lack of a better term, the immune army. So it's it's really defending against invasion in any sense of it. And you so now we have uh, lots of cells, lots of soldiers being recruited into your lungs, mobilized, recruited into your lungs, and they're going to begin fighting the virus. Oh, interesting. So, so is that is that when your lungs start to, you know, burn or ache or well, you'll fill with more fluid. Yeah. So you'll get some fluid in there. Um, you'll start with not it's not so much feeling things in the lung it's it's the the um the soluble factors that are sort of sending out the alert are really what drives the mm, feeling like crap yeah just thing. lethargic yeah. and yeah so it's it's these are called interleukins they 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 signal other cells to come so you're, you know your 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 immune cells are going to be living in your lymph nodes or your spleen, hanging out, waiting for an infection. Now they're, they're mobilized to come in um, by these soluble factors that are spewed out into your bloodstream. And so now they're re- being recruited in, and this, number one, they're going to uh, start to divide a lot, so you're going to get swollen lymph nodes. That's mm. your cells dividing and responding. And then um, these soluble factors, since they are going all over your body in your bloodstream they go to your brain they go to your muscles so um the reason that you get lethargic is what's going on in your brain these factors affect uh signal they they signal to to, um cells in your brain that you so that you will feel tired you will feel lethargic they signal in your muscles so your mm. muscles will start to ache. Wow. And these are so that's interesting. So it's it's not the flu that makes me ache, it's my body's response to the flu that makes me ache and achy and lethargic exactly. and swollen lymph nodes. It's yes. my body responding. Yes. Yes. So it's it's the the army of your immune system mobilizing to fight the virus and and you know the, the ultimate goal is for the, for your adaptive immune response to come in to your lungs and specifically kill the virally infected cells. Now interesting does it does it overshoot I mean could it be that I'm getting way too big of a of a fix for a small dose of the virus? That's a possibility, yes. And you know th- this this uh, is one of the problems with an immune response in a vital organ such as the lung um, during the resolution or the of the infection when the virus is pretty much getting cleared you're having a really strong response going on in the lung because of your immune system yeah. and that's causing a lot of pathology okay and that's going to be lung damage. That's that's when it gets really hard to breathe. You're coughing. And if I already have lung issues, 
If yeah. I already have uh, breathing issues, then this is where it could become fatal. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. The other problem with this is this really now sets up a stage for uh, secondary infections. So you can get a secondary bacterial infection. A, a lot of people who die from flu actually don't really die from flu. They'll die from secondary bacterial pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you just, you begin to get a little better, you think, like you're better for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden you get the bacterial pneumonia. And if you're not in the hospital, it's not going to be good. Oh, wow. Interesting. So yeah. isn't it, it, it's, it really is our body doing everything it can to help us, but simultaneously it's causing pain. And if we don't watch it and pay attention and we already have other conditions, it could, it could actually exacerbate the whole situation. Exactly. So, you know, older folks who have uh, chronic lung disease, people who or younger folks who have chronic lung disease also, uh, people who smoke or people who uh, have jobs where they ha- are exposed to uh, lung irritants. These are people are really uh, much more susceptible to a bad outcome during flu. Then we talk about the the flu shot that we ought to get the flu mm-hmm. shot. And so, what is when we get the flu shot? What exactly is happening, and and how is it beneficial if there are so many variations of the flu? Yes. Yeah, so it it is beneficial. It's obviously not a hundred percent preventive. But so what the flu vaccine does is uh, it it's it's just purified proteins from the virus. So there's no actual virus in a flu vaccine except for the flu mist, which is the, what you get up your nose, which Mm -hmm. they haven't been recommending. It hasn't been working well lately. But um, all the flu shots that you get intramuscularly in your arm, they're all, they contain no flu virus. So, um, and the goal of those is to induce an antibody response. And now the antibodies are going to be made by a responding a B lymphocytes, and the antibodies will circulate. And once you have the virus in your lungs or once it, it gets introduced to your body, what the antibodies do, they're just little um, molecules that can bind to the virus. They're specific for a specific type of the flu virus, and that's decided about now is they're they're deciding what flu viruses need to be in the vaccine for next year. Hmm. Um, So they'll bind to the virus and the the ultimate goal there is to prevent the virus from binding to the cells in your lungs. Now, maybe it doesn't work totally, but if it works a little bit, the level of virus that actually gets in your lungs is reduced. But also, if you do get an infection, and new virus is produced in your lungs from your lung cells, the antibody will mop it up quickie, quicker. Yeah, yeah, quicker. Yeah. So you, it's just sort of dampening down the level of infection so you don't get as sick. Uh, the other thing that we don't understand, but it's really been coming out in studies lately, is that the flu vaccine is highly correlated with reductions in heart attacks and strokes, especially in older folks. So flu makes older people much more susceptible to heart attacks and strokes for reasons that we don't understand. And the flu vaccine really protects against that. 
wow. And then, so is it compounding? So if I get a flu shot every year, does it, that that means I'll get different proteins uh, and uh, influence of proteins year after year after year. Mm -hmm. Does it make, over time, does it build a stronger bridge for me? Um, Or a stronger wall against this? It it could. um, We're not really sure. The, the, the main issue with the way that the flu vaccine is made now is that it, it's not, obviously, it's not, it doesn't induce a long-lived mm. response. So, you know, it, it induces a, a response that is protective over a period of months, but it doesn't seem to last. That, that, that It's a very transient protection, and we don't understand why. You know, this is part of, of the immune system that, that is not totally understood yet, you know, what makes a long-lived response versus what makes a short-lived response. And, you know, some vaccines, you know, like like a a measles vaccine induces a lifelong immune response. Hmm. But flu doesn't. Flu, and and it's it's also the nature of the vaccine because it's... um, it's not as strong, whereas a, a measles vaccine is a, is a attenuated live virus. A flu vaccine is protein, and it induces a different kind of immune response. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Does um, – do, do you sense, like, overall that the, the flu viruses that we're seeing today, are they more aggressive than we would have seen 30 years ago? Are these viruses getting stronger, tougher, more – um, tricky than they maybe were years ago, or is it the same virus? I mean, is, is it just another iteration? I, it's mostly another iteration. Um, you know, once in a while we'll have a strong uh, pandemic virus, like we had in 2009, 2010, or like what we had in 1918. But uh, honestly, like to this year, the H3N2 was circulating more than the H1N1, which was what the pandemic was in 2010. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a, not a new virus. This is something that goes around every few years. Hmm. So un- unless there's a perturbation of a new, with a new virus or a new combination of virus, then um, we're, we see uh, similar things. And so if people you know, get sick and survive one pandemic, when that virus comes around again, they'll be protected. What would you say to um, people that say, well, man, Laura, you know, it sounds like a lot of people are getting the flu shot, so I probably don't need it. Uh, Because I think what, what I just said is that, you know, it doesn't protect totally. So even if you, those people who don't, who do get, who, who get it and still get sick, can still transmit it to you. Yeah. And my my big issue with people who don't get the flu shot is that if they get sick, you know, they, they may be young and healthy, but, you know, they're going to go... But grandma may visit, not be. Visit grandma. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, visit uh, elderly people. And they, the younger people are much more protected when they get the flu vaccine than older people are, and which is not good because older people are way more susceptible to getting really sick. Mm-hmm. So um, honestly, when you're getting the flu shot, you're probably getting it not for yourself so much, but to keep from transmitting it to other people. Hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. What would you, um, I mean, I guess in the end, because then we also hear 
uh, I mean, this is something that if if I have a lung issue, if I have asthma or severe asthma or other issues that or and what are some of those issues that would make me more susceptible that I really need to make sure I'm paying attention when they're talking about the flu? So, yes. So anyone who has asthma, respiratory allergies, um, COPD, emphysema, um, or even if you know you're just really prone to getting a lot of viral infections, uh, you know, young adults of that nature, um, also young kids. Mm. So young kids, you know, most, most people, once they get to be an adult, have some flu immunity. They're not, they've been exposed to flu, so they're a bit protected. But young kids are not, they're very, um, their immune systems are quite naive. And and so they can get really sick. And I think this past season, we've seen a lot of kids die from flu. That's so tragic. Well, Lara, we appreciate your insight uh, and your great, your great just willingness to help, uh, help us understand that uh, when you are feeling all the pains, all the aches, all the trouble, the congestion in your chest, uh, it's really your body getting to work. It's a sign of good, not necessarily a sign just of the bad. Your body is engaged. Um, Laura Haynes, again, Ph.D., professor of immunology at the University of Connecticut Health, um, and uh, great, uh, great insights. Thank you very much. We will continue the journey Continue learning, doing what we can to make not just the the world a better place from, you know, influenza, but uh, up next we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can improve our relationships along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, one of the things I studied in my doctoral program is uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory, more than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory, which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You don't. You don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation, I mean, as you would know them today. But that that symbol, that I that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over time end up being created. Which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol. But if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, why I bring this up is that I, we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I, one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there's certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times, they they may be told, but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, Resiliency is that ability to 
to bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state. And so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories, by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard. Life, there are some struggles, but it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key, it's the response to the trial. Um, It might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they, you know, are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, but it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story. When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are? Everybody, you may have had that moment when, you know, you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system, and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that, you know what, I, I'm better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably, you, can, you could be a doctor or you could, you could get into this school that you want to get into, and you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a, you know, a mathematician or a scientist. That's the who am I story. And I think kids, especially like my college kids, need to know how I came to know who I was. So I try to share that story. Another story you could share is the what matters most story, like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values. And you just share the story. I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course. My entire life, uh, I was always taught you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course, and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday, and I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down, basically, a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then, as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value it. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I, I need to – I need to – not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I've crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. (laughs) Anyway, they looked at me like, okay. But that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. You know, the life of a police officer sounds difficult, doesn't it? Dealing with theft and accidents, 
seeing the most uh, traumatic events of people's lives, murders on top of all of that. You know, you think the last thing on their mind would be uh, anything about their untucked shirt. But experts are looking into the daily life of a police, o- police officers, and it seems like some administration officials are so concerned with trivial rules that an untucked shirt or a missing hat may be the biggest worry in a cop's mind, even after saving someone's life. Is administration of police force corrupting or burdening the justice system? Well, a few months back, I spoke with John Shane, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, to help us understand the kind of stresses police deal with in their everyday lives. Uh, It was based on an article from Marketplace.org and entitled The Cost of Stress in the Police Force. I started the interview by asking, is police work really a thankless job? Well, yeah, you do have a point there. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stop short of saying it, it's thankless. There are there are certainly a lot of thankless moments. Yeah. That the pub, that the public certainly doesn't understand, but there are there's a lot of you know good that uh, you know the police contribute to society you in bet. terms of you know, recreational opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, you cannot have a viable community with employment, recreation, good schools without having a very strong uh, police force. And, you know, yes, uh, no, nobody likes when the lights are, are turned on behind them while they're traveling down the road uh, above the speed limit, you know, but there, there are good reasons for that. And, and, you know, discretion certainly plays a lot into how police officers interact with members of the community. But, yes, you are right. Uh, the stresses of the day-to-day operations of policing, uh, I think the research bears... Uh, bears us out are, are much more detrimental than the operational aspects of policing. Oh, yeah. In fact, th- this article that we were citing, the cost of stress in the police force, I guess there's a there's an organization called Cop to Cop, which is a 24-hour hotline that fields up to 850 calls every month for stressed out police officers. And the, the, the leader of that, Sherry Castellano, said um, that she she's found that it's one thing's the trauma, right, of just having being a cop and exposure to murder, car accidents and hurt kids. But she said what may be even a bigger issue is simply what happens after the car chase is over. The, you know, the leave, the administrative leave and having to deal with administration. Do you see that, John, in your research with police officers, that there's a lot of tension just between the, the administration of the police officers and the cops? The, the answer is 100% yes. Mm. Uh, I know Cherie very well. When she started Cop to Cop, I was working in the Newark Police Department, and my division and myself and a couple others were instrumental in getting that operation up and running. Oh, great. Between the Newark Police Department and you know, University Hospital at the time. So we're going back now probably to about uh, 1996, 97, wow. somewhere around there. So it's up around 20 years. But the research that I've done... And uh, the interviews that I've done with police officers have certainly bear witness to the fact that it is the administrative side of policing that is much more detrimental to their emotional well-being and their stress levels than it is the operation. Mm. And and a lot of this stuff centers on things like constantly being second-guessed in the work that they do, constantly having their decisions overridden, constantly being subjected to an enormous policy and procedures manual that uh, covers literally everything you could think of, from the way you have to wear your uniform and your shoes and your hat, to how you are to conduct yourself during a police pursuit 
and the reports that you are, you know, required to file, the level of bureaucracy. And most people have no real good conception of how policing is structured. You know, the, the, the image that everybody has is that of, you know, the cops television show or these glamorized yeah. uh, Hollywood-style NYPD sorts of things. Yeah. But the, the reality of police work is that most police departments around the country are about 15 police officers. Some are very, very, uh, very small. They're nothing like the NYPD. And there's a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and oversight that wears on you on a day-to-day basis and until it eventually wears you down into something like suicide or alcohol or other performance problems. Oh. And then the... The political side of it, and I mean, I, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and you'd go to this, you'd go to the scene, and it's dangerous. And we'd even sit outside and wait for the cops to go in for the dangerous thing, and then clear the scene, and then we would go in and take care of people. But what was so amazing to me is after all the intensity and getting everything done, and you finally you risk life and limb, and you get to the hospital, you get the patient taken care of, then you still have a half hour to forty minutes of paperwork. And and then to have your leader come in and say, now, what was this? And start questioning your paperwork. You're like, holy cow. I mean, yeah, that, it's exactly stressful. And, 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 the, and the, the idea of liability looms large behind that. Yeah. And the fact that your hospital is going to be sued, you're going to be sued personally. You're going to be held accountable for a decision that you made to save someone's life within two seconds. And someone's going to take six months behind the scenes to critique your ideas with the with the best law books and everything else to say, well, no, what you did was wrong, uh, and we're going to prove it to you, and here's how it works. Mm. That's a very difficult proposition to be in on a day-to-day basis for 20, 25 years of your, of your career. Oh, and and, and you, you saw it in those funerals of those officers that were shot in New York when there was the you know the people that the officers that turned their back to mayor de blasio and that whole kind of situation but there's incredible tension and these people are giving their lives and the majority are just good folk right they're just good people but they don't feel like they have their leaders their administration backing them yeah there there's been a lot of very very good research uh from the 1970s into the 1980s about the differences between what are known as management cops and operational police officers. And those at the line level many, many times feel as though the people in management don't support them, don't understand what it is they're facing, have forgotten where they've come from, and suddenly they have this management persona that is antithetical to everything that's going on in the field. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I, look, I respect the fact that the community has to have the right to complain. They have to have an avenue for redress. And, you know, everybody has to, you know, be heard. Because there are times when police officers don't act the right way. We, I think we all know that. Right, right. But to have routine, mundane, everyday decisions questioned, because that is essentially what we pay police officers to do. We pay the police to make decisions on our behalf, uh, in our best interest, to keep us safe um, from all sorts of things. And at every single turn, there always seems to be someone who says, well, you know, the police could have done this, that, and the other thing. And because they didn't, we're going to hold them accountable. We're going to prefer departmental charges against them. And, you know, next thing you know, somebody's being suspended for a decision they made 
that's perfectly within their right, but because someone feels that they should they, they, they should have done something else, yeah, that they are now subject to departmental criticism. An, an example you give is just simply the uniform, right? So you you they could be just simply nitpicked in their meeting, their pre whatever meeting, just for their wrong sock colors or whatever, and um, all of a sudden we're not only being nitpicked for what I do on the street, but I'm also now have to be be I guess perfect at literally everything because one complaint will come down on me. Yeah, and it's those very sorts of things that weigh on you day in and day out. You see, if you face a man with a gun, if you face a car chase or a fight in the street or a domestic call or a car stop that is uh, a little bit hazardous, they are brief, momentary points in time. They come and they go. Yeah. And you can recover from them. You know, you, you sit back in your car after the episode, and you think about what happened. You have time to calm down. But the rule book in a police department, the rules, the regulations, the policies, the overbearing autocratic supervisor who got his or her job through nepotism and is certainly not qualified to sit there, has authority over you. And that authority never goes away. You either leave the, the police organization or you learn to cope with those things. And unfortunately, there's no real coping mechanism when you've got an overbearing autocratic boss who can turn to a 700-page book and find something that you've done wrong at every single turn. Mm. That never leaves you. Where the car chase will leave you and the domestic violence episode will leave you after a brief moment, the rule book and management never leave you. You either leave police work or you learn to live with it. Well, and that's learning a... to live with it. That, that often means turning to drugs, alcohol, yeah. domestic violence, you know, other maladaptive behaviors. Well, and maladaptive behaviors that then may be acted out in your job again. It, it's, well, of course they are. Yeah. I mean, but what's, like use of force and courtesy and all sorts of other things. I mean, you're talking about a 700-page rule book that's just the rule book of being the cop. That's not even just the laws they need to uphold, right? That's just the cop rule book. Right, that is the rule book of the organization. Are they, and if you, it, it's very simply stated. If you were to go online, uh, onto the internet, and and Google something like uh, policy manual or department procedures or uh, some something like rules and regulations, you can find organizational examples from across the country. Mm. And every one of them is two, three, four, five, six hundred pages. There's some on there that are nine hundred pages long. <laughs> Nobody could possibly uh, be expected to memorize that, and yet someone somewhere knows what's embedded on page 543, and they're going to pull it out and use it against you. Yeah, and they may not even use it against you in the moment. They just may use it against you the minute there's a complaint. It's, 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 well, a, it, it's tense. Yeah, that, see, that, that's part of the problem because the human experience cannot be mathematized. Right. It, right. It, it's it, not by rote. It's it's so really situational. Sort of a, yeah. A, a, yes, it's situational. It's discretionary. And someone always has a counterexample of what you should have done uh, in that moment. And that person, unfortunately, is someone sitting behind a desk somewhere who has all the time and decision making power in the world. But you had to do this in three and a half minutes on the scene of an incident. That was Dr. John Shane. Uh, we'll be hearing more uh, from him next hour about the pressure on the police force. Now let's get to the BBC.